Thoth's Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, welcome to episode 18 of season 4 of the Thoth Hermes podcast. My name is Rudolf, I am your host, and I'm greeting you from the outskirts of Austria's lovely capital, Vienna. Today is May the 3rd, 2020, and our episode today is called Crowley's India. Yes, Crowley's India, which has been the topic of a highly interesting book by today's guest, who is Tobias Churton. Tobias, who is not the first time here on the Thoth Hermes podcast. I'm happy to have him back and a little more about this later. I hope you are coping with the difficult times that we are all going through at the moment. I'm glad to say that I have so far uh, been happy not to be touched too much by all this matter. But I know I'm a lucky person and I know many others and many of you probably as well haven't had as much luck as I have. So my best wishes and my thoughts go to all of you who are in trouble those days. Thank you for being with us here today anyway, and maybe this hour and a half in our company here will give you a little bit of other thoughts and points of view. And we all, of course, hope that we all get through this phase in good shape and in good health and that we all will get out of it more or less unharmed. I wish it to all of you. Right. Um, well, I don't know if this is your first time on the Thoth Hermes podcast or if you are a returning listener. Well, greetings to all of you who are here for the first time. Um, if you have not found out more about our podcast yet, do go on the website. It is www.thoshermes.com. That is T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S dot com. There you do not only find all the episodes of the Thought Hermes podcast. As I said, we are already in episode 18 of season 4. So there are basically 60 episodes out there that you can listen to. And you can also find show notes and all the information about this podcast and its guests with links to their books, to their websites, etc., etc., so I think it's really worth it to go there. And also, if you want to get in touch with me, and I say I do love feedback. So go on the website and send me a voicemail there on the first page. You see on the right, the little tab, click on that, and it's a free voicemail you can send to me. Or go on the contact page, send me a message from there, or why not sending an email as well? Info at thoughthermes.com. 
And if all of that is not yours, then, well, you go on Twitter or on Facebook, leave me messages there, or even a comment on YouTube. And maybe this is the moment to remind you two things and remind this to all of you here, even those who are regulars. We also have an audio-only version, of course, an audio version of this podcast on YouTube, and you can listen to it there if you prefer and leave comments. Right. The second thing I would like to mention that does not work on YouTube, but on our podcast players, on your podcast players, you can always use chapters. We have chapters where you can jump to certain points within the podcast, to each musical piece that we play, to the beginning of the interview, to the second part of the interview, and to the outro. So if you want to jump directly there, have a look at those chapter markers which are integrated in our podcast and you will be able to move around yes now i'm going to talk about tata patreon thanks to all of you who have in the meantime become patrons of this show we have more than tripled um, our members our patrons here but um, well there is still some headroom i think uh, those 2,600 listeners each week. And we are now just under 30, just under 30 um, uh, patrons. So maybe there are a few more of you out there. We start in those difficult times already at $1 per episode. So normally it's to the lowest level. But while we are in this corona period, I've decided to give another level of that $1 per episode. And if more of you would join there, that really helps me to sustain and to maintain this podcast and also to develop new things. Right. Well, thanks again to those who have already become patrons and looking forward to see more of you there. Right. I won't keep you much longer today. Um, sometimes I get a bit chatty during these intros here. I'm sorry if some of you feel it's too chatty, but I just need to be in touch with you and to have a little word with you from time to time. Right. So now it's music time, right? Okay. Today, do it a bit differently. I will play you the piece first and I will let you know what it was and who it was who performed and sang that piece that we're going to hear afterwards. You'll find out why. So let's go and just listen to this first. Stress, plan, a broken down hotel in Paris. Hey, Paris. I was saved by 
Nice little song in the old style, isn't it? 
Yes, well, guess what that was. The song is called Leave It to Chance, uh, with a question mark, actually. Leave it to chance, question mark. And, well, the author and the artist performing this song is Tobias Churton. Yes, those of you who have been with us back on the second time he appeared on this show, he already performed his music there for us. And so you already know and knew that Tobias was also a very prolific musician, not only a very prolific author. And uh, the other two pieces we are going to hear today are, of course, also by him. Thank you, Tobias, for giving them to us. Really enjoyed that. So that was Leave It to Chance, question mark, an autobiographical song in the old style about romance and when to go for it, as Tobias puts it himself. Okay, and that brought us already into the middle of the announcement of what's to come now, which is our interview with Tobias Churton. As I just mentioned, it's not the first time that he is with us here on the show, and you're going to hear that right in the beginning of the interview. It's his third appearance here. Um, and it's always such a pleasure to talk to him. I could, I could imagine it's not going to be the last time either. Um, right, so also a reason why he is here for the third time is that he is really writing so interesting books and at quite a regular rhythm, I must say. The first time we had him here was about his book on Aleister Crowley in America. And then he came back on his book about the 60s. And that was also a very interesting chat. And in the same way, we continue today on his new one, which is Aleister Crowley in India. Uh, visibly, Alistair Crowley is a personality that has always fascinated Tobias. He's explaining to us in the interview why this is and also why those books, also the three that I just mentioned and that we have presented here in more in-depth situations, um, that these books always one follows out of the one that came before. So there is some logic in that development and I'm sure you're going to feel that also in the interview that we're going to have today, which is a lot about Aleister Crowley and his path through India and his return from India, which is just as important. But it's not only how could it be with Tobias. We always get into very interesting discussions and details. And um, it's, as I say, always fascinating to talk to him. And I'm quite sure it's also always fascinating to listen to him. Okay, um, I won't keep you any longer, but um, just before we go to England and meet Tobias, um, a quick reminder that in the middle of this interview, about 35 minutes into our interview today, we're going to have a little break, a musical break as always, and come back and have a little chat between. Okay, Raoul, let's go and meet Tobias Churchin. Here comes the interview. And now we are beating a new record on 
the False Hermes podcast because it's the first time we have somebody for the third time for an interview on this show. And it's somebody no less than Tobias Churton, who I'm very happy to welcome back here on False Hermes podcast. Tobias, hello. Good afternoon to you. Hello. Lovely to be here. And uh, as you say, no less than Tobias Churton and no exactly. more. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's also good. That's a special on an occult podcast. <laughs> well, great to have you, Tobias. And uh, the reason uh, that we are getting together, otherwise it's, it's always good to talk to you, but uh, the reason today why we're meeting is no less than Alistair Crowley again, because we already met about him um, once uh, when you had freshly published to your book, Alistair Crowley in America. And um, that was really fascinating then. And now there is another really fascinating book that came out a few months ago. We intended to speak a bit earlier, but time being what it is, uh, it only was possible now. And um, so this time it is about Alistair Crowley in India. And I would really uh, like you to first maybe give me your intention, why you, why you picked that very special period in Crow's life, I admit, why you picked it to out to, to make a whole book about it, because I think it's a it's an essential period for his life and for what followed, isn't it? Yes, I think all my books tend to grow, one grows out of another. And uh, the book before this was the, the book about the 1960s, the spiritual meaning of the 60s. Which we also spoke about here on the podcast. Good idea. Um, there, I think in that book, I wanted to get to exactly what specific Hindu influences there were in the 1960s that were particularly strong. How can we explain the popularity of Krishna consciousness or Maharishi Mahesh Yogi? Uh, the, the, I had to get to grips with separating these Hindu traditions because in the West, we tend to lump it all together and end up with a kind of theosophical soft nirvana um, a, a bit of meditation and you're almost there. And what I wanted to do is to clarify for people uh, what we mean when we talk about Vedanta or Advaita and what those terms actually mean. And it, it became interesting to me that one way of approaching the analysis of Hindu religion rather than writing an encyclopedia of Hindu religion, which probably only is going to confuse more, Mm -hmm. was to take Crowley's experience of it because it was so intimate but also so challenging. I mean, he never accepted an idea like that because it came along. It had to go through a process. So in Crowley's coming to terms with uh, Indian religion, it gave me an opportunity to clarify the very great differences in positions that exist within different schools of Indian thought. And obviously the very great difference, which is so often obscured, between Buddhism and Hinduism uh, in its uh, assessment of the human soul. So Crowley was a good vehicle for that. And of course, when I got into that idea, I also realized what a, what a great story it was and that the story hadn't been told as a unity. And the 
People often wonder when they pick up a book by Crowley on magic, why the first thing that they're introduced to is is getting into an asana and doing yoga. And uh, people have done this. I know they did it in the 60s without, without too much thought. That's what you're supposed to do. But it always struck me as a bit strange that it's supposed to be magic, i.e. a Western tradition. And the first thing we're talking about is dhyana and dharana and samadhi and all of these, these different trances as being relevant to magic. I, I would have thought most people thought there's a great difference between mystical meditation and performing acts of magic, which may have no particularly sacred value in themselves at all. Uh, so again, trying to explain why Crowley emphasized the study of yoga was also important to understanding Crowley. And it also helps us to understand yoga. The other interesting thing was this whole notion that Crowley was a sex magician and that he was a Tantra freak. And of course, it was fascinating to find out that Tantra was a subject which he was very little interested in. Uh, he, didn't, um, he didn't get his sexual doctrine from Tantra uh, uh, hardly at all. It, Tantra was always in the background of Carl Kellner and Theodore Royce's right. view of the ninth degree and the idea that there was an Eastern sacred wisdom of sex. That was important to them. Crowley wasn't really terribly interested in the tantric traditions. He'd seen it in India and he wasn't interested. He'd, I think he was sort of rather repelled by the world in which uh, tantric, tantrics operated in India. Wasn't really his scene at all. And... Um, I don't even know if he ever even read Woodruff's studies of, of Tantra. Really? Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was this other thing that came about in all the biographies of Crowley of any, any value. Uh, they mentioned that Crowley in his later years met David Kerwin and Henrik Bogdan's done a book of the letters between Crowley and David Kerwin, who was a, a practicing alchemist in the 1940s who had a massive impact on Kenneth Grant, Crowley's follow, erstwhile follower. Uh, but in fact, as I found out, Crowley would, had been persuaded by Kerwin's comments that he was a great tantra expert. But it, it turned out, as I found out in the book, that in fact, Kerwin's source for his tantric thinking was in fact uh, a, a group of uh, people in India who were using Crowley's books. <laughs> really? Well, that's what you call short circuit. <laughs> yeah. So Crowley ends up being an Indian religion promoted by Indians for export to the West. And that was, that's the kind of killer sting at the end of the book where I explain that. And that'll be, a, I think, I hope, I'd like to think it would be a surprise for Crowleyan fans. Um, mm -hmm. However, I found that Crowley fans are never surprised by anything because they knew it all already. So <laughs> you can't, it's very difficult to educate somebody who claims a long-term interest in Crowley. They know it all. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but however, I think even, even they may be disturbed just a little by this ripple that Crowley was not a tantric master, which is often described as being. It wasn't his bag. He didn't approach it from that angle at all. So, so, you know, there was so much to reveal in this Crowley and India thing. Right. And the other motive was it, a lot of young people I've met right through my life, including in a way myself, uh, have this romantic notion of going to Kathmandu and getting acquainted with the spirituality of the East. And I wanted to put... Shambhala. Young, all of that, all of that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Jostics, dope. Yeah. 
you know, um, Beatles, Maharishi, yeah. uh, you know, I saw God and yeah. all this stuff. And I wanted to um, give people who were interested in going to India a real insight into just how this uh, this Western Indian mythology has developed. And and you'd, if you read my book carefully, you'd be well armed when you went there, and you'd, you'd see a lot more than you would otherwise notice. So it's a sort of it's a sort of every man's guide to India. Absolutely, that's what I was going to say. When I read the book, I was surprised that it. It's much more than actually talking about about uh, Crowley in India. It's also talking a lot about India today, and that's that's a surprise. That's a real was a real surprise to me. But you you said you mentioned something that um, Crowley wouldn't have been part or wouldn't have liked to be part of that tantric um, family in India at the time. Um, why would that be? Would would that have to do with his British background or was there other other reasons for that? Yes, I think he'd, he'd, he'd been in the marketplaces of Varanasi, Calcutta, Delhi, Agra and, uh, and down south in Mad- Madurai uh, at the Minakshi temple. And he could see that a lot of the practiced religion in India that was most obvious to people was a kind of public scam and that the people are very easily impressed by somebody who wears a loincloth, sits by the side of the road, uh, begs for arms and looks pretty intent, you know, he's got a spot above his nose and all this sort of thing. And so I think, I think he, he, he was a great cynic about this sort of thing. Um, you know, he, if you read his book about Jesus, Mm-hmm. Um, which when I bought it was called Crowley on Christ, but that wasn't his title. No. He called it the gospel according to St. Bernard Shaw. Um, and right, he, exactly. He basically says that, you know, if you saw what I'd seen in India, you'd understand why, what we mean by the kings visiting Jesus and things like this. He said, I had kings visit me, you know, when he's on his way to uh, K2. Kings meaning a local sheik, chieftain, yeah. so to say. Yeah. And... Uh, he, he was he he translated everything he saw in India back into terms which made scientific sense to him, and he wasn't bamboozled by the mystery or the mythology at all. He wanted this is the thing about Crowley. He was always looking for the science of the magic. Right. So uh, he he would have been he if if people caked themselves in manure and sat in a corner covered with ash in a temple in Benares or Varanasi, uh, depending which version you prefer. Uh, he, he he would have just seen a guy covered in ash and excrement, and his, mm-hmm. you know, and he would have thought that was. He'd be interested to know why they did it, but otherwise, I think he'd he'd, he'd regard it as a superstitious world uh, with a superstitious religion covered with a lot of superstitious moral uh, coating that had obscured a more ancient gnosis. Yeah. So in that sense, I don't think he, he always talked about the greasy swami. You know, he said, if I behave to you as some of these gurus do, I wouldn't let you in my room, but I'm talking <laughs> to you. You know, I'm not, I'm not putting a barrier between me. I'm not saying I am the great enlightened, keep your distance, bring your gifts to me and all this sort of thing. He could yeah. have played that part. He could easily have set himself up in India as, as a yogi yeah. and, uh, and, and, you know, manufactured mental experiences in believers mm-hmm. uh, but he didn't so I think in that sense he was cynical about India culturally speaking 
again, this might this might be a, a difficult or even dangerous question, but you as a Brit, you might be able to 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 answer that. Was the time and the time and the relation between the British Empire and India at the time when Crowley was there, did that play part in his views on it or was he you think free of that of that colonialistic type of view well crowley didn't like colonial types mm. particularly yeah um his, his viewpoint was complex i don't think he he uh would have thought himself um racially superior he thought the english as he, he thought indian culture civilization as a whole mm -hmm. viewed at as what it did was vastly superior to western industrialized um slavery mm -hmm. that he'd come from and he thought that many of their views were were sound and generous and uh, interesting and, and all that so uh, on the other hand I think he would have felt that the largest number of the population of, of, of India, the uh, uneducated, while they had sort of native savvy, as we say, so, um, skills, ability to survive, which was impressive. Um, I think he probably felt that Western people were uh, men mentally more advanced. And in that, insofar as that might be true in an individual case, Uh, superior to the average Indian, but you've also got to you've got to qualify. You could qualify all of that. I think it'd be very difficult for an Englishman to go to India in 1900 and not know that you were on the winning side uh, to a, to a large extent, and that these people were in some ways dependent on the government uh, on the wise government that you had imposed upon them. So I don't think yeah. he could quite escape from that. Having said that. He had no time for the typical British officer type who imagined that by being born English, he was therefore superior. I yeah. mean, he'd, he'd taken a lot from Madame Blavatsky's praise of the Indian Shastras, and that was unusual. He was also prepared to disqualify Christianity, which was a major cultural move for him. Yeah, especially and, in that relation. Yeah. yeah, and he was planning with his friend Alan Bennett to bring Buddhism back to England. He, he, if I think if Crowley hadn't had the Thelemic eruption in Cairo in 1904, mm -hmm. he would have probably led the first Sangha from Rangoon with Alan Bennett and tried to persuade the British that the, 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 the only solution rationally to our problem was Buddhism. He was incredibly impressed by the original Buddhist doctrine, but again, he was deeply unimpressed by the superstitious way that this was promulgated in Ceylon or Sri Lanka, as it's called now. I right. mean, he said, while there is a, a, a superb Buddhist philosophy, uh, the actual practice of it, he thought, was utterly corrupt. And he talks about when he went to Rangoon seeing a boy, a hydrocephalus boy, the huge yeah. head and mm. steeply ill Uh, sitting by the, uh, the the famous Shui Pagoda in Rangoon, surrounded by all these priests who are all indifferent to him. Uh, and he was obviously hoping for some kind of blessing. Um, the difference he saw between Buddha's original philosophy and the practice of Buddhism was so great for him that he had little but contempt for the the ordinary 
Buddhist, uh, so-called Buddhist priests. And he also knew anyway that this idea that they're all peace-loving was another fiction. <laughs> uh, because as we've seen in Burma recently, when they, a Buddhist priest gets angry, he's as angry as anybody. Absolutely. Yeah, true, true. Did, did he get uh, in direct touch and in good, I mean, direct touch with the Bone tradition, with the old Tibetan Buddhism also at the time? No, he, he, his, he never got to Tibet, probably like Blavatsky never got to Tibet. Yeah. But they, they were in what was called Little Tibet, you know, North, mm -hmm. Northern Kashmir was sometimes called Little Tibet. Um, Uh, Crowley never expressed an enormous amount of interest in Tibet. I think he, he, he was interested in the Theravada tradition, which is the oldest Buddhist tradition, which he encountered in its purest available form in, in Ceylon. Uh, and I think having encountered that and uh, absorbed it, written about it, um, argued himself with it and eventually rejected it fundamentally, uh, I think he, he'd had enough of... of, of uh, of the Buddhist tradition. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I would say in these matters, you can't teach Crowley a great deal. <laughs> And so the way, the, the way the Eastern, the Eastern traditions are still promulgated in the West, that there's something tremendously special because the words are difficult to remember and the concepts have to be expressed in a sort of a poor English has tended to make Western people feel a little bit too respectful of uh, Oriental philosophy because it's actually a learning process, even at the basic level of words. But this is also a trick because if you go back to India in the 19th century, the Indian intellectual felt exactly the same about British science or German philosophy, that it was something they had to learn. And because they had to learn it, it seemed more superior than it was. This is just what happens when people visit each other's culture. They're faced with a learning problem. When I first went to Germany, there was a learning problem that makes you feel a little bit inferior. Because, right. you know, and that's, but Crowley actually saw right through that. And his, his view was human beings are basically the, the same around the world, but they've been shaped by their history, traditions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but he was a highly, critic, highly critical of his own culture. And he didn't go to the East for nothing. He did go to learn. Um, well, that was my next question. What initially did bring him? I think Sri Lanka was his first, first, yeah, well, what, the first what, part he visited, right? Well, what brought him there was, was several factors, but Probably the chief was, he was on a kind of solo adept quest. Uh, he was on his personal grand tour, but he'd been kind of forced into that because he'd fallen out with the Golden Dawn, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn in London. And that completely cut him off from his initiatic process and route. And he then went to America and he was, he was nearly a year in Mexico. Uh, not climbing mountains for the first five months. We're not quite sure what he was doing. Uh, he arrived under a pseudonym, uh, Achille O'Rourke, as I put in the Crowley in America book. Exactly. Uh, which is still a bit of a, there's still some mystery going on there, I, I, I can say for sure. Um, but he went, he went to Sri Lanka, Ceylon, because Alan Bennett was there. And Alan Bennett was the one man he really looked up to in that mm -hmm. period, especially where magic and religion was concerned. And Bennett had thrown his entire life into 
Buddhism and Raj Yoga. And he'd given up the magical tradition. I think that also interested Crowley. What was so great about Buddhism and Raj Yoga that he, he would, was prepared to throw away his training in the, gold, the Golden Dawn for? Mm-hmm. Uh, Crowley wanted to know, what was he, what was he missing out on? And uh, so he, he wanted to practice and succeed at yoga. The other thing was, I think Crowley already had an idea because he'd started the sacred magic of Abramel in the Mage in 1899 at Beleskin, late 1899. He'd interrupted it to go and support Mathers with the battle with the London Hermetic Order. And I think he'd already, he'd got some notion, I think, in his mind that Samadhi anyway, that the ultimate union of Raj Yoga was the same as the knowledge and conversation of the Holy Guardian Angel. Holy Guardian Angel, oh, right. Mm-hmm. And that's one of his great insights. Uh, whether it came to him then, before or much later is, is not clear. But certainly by 1905, he would have regarded the achievement of Samadhi as identical to the knowledge and conversation of the Holy Guardian Angel. And that brings Eastern and Western esoteric traditions straight together again and really creates a a neo-Gnosticism without him even realizing he'd done it, I think, in a way. But um, what did Madame Blavatsky's influence have to do in, in that? Was she also, by going to see Bennett, was that also inciting him to, 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 to go to India? Yes, Blavatsky had a massive effect on Bennett, more, I think, than on Crowley. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Bennett, his first experience when he comes to Ceylon in early 1900 is to lecture at the Theosophical Lodge of Hope in Colombo. And he lectures to the Theosophists on Buddhism, which is exactly what Blavatsky had done uh, 20 years earlier, because the journey that Crowley made to Sri Lanka, in I keep saying, I prefer Ceylon because that's the name Crowley. Uh, sure, sure. Um, yeah. It was always Ceylon when I was a boy anyway. I, mm. uh, Blavatsky had done exactly the same trip in Ceylon. She'd gone to Ceylon, told the Buddhists that they were right, that they were right to oppose the Christian missionaries. They were right to oppose the Church of England. They were right to question the bishops who came to convert them to Christianity. Blavatsky had done that. Now, that Crowley admired that hugely, the fact that she'd stood up against the Christian church. I mean, before I wrote the book, I read the three-volume account of Bishop Heber, who was the first Anglican Bishop of Calcutta, who went to India in 1824. And the first part of the book, which I had to cut for reasons of length, which was a book in itself, was about the whole British religious engagement with India. And that got cut from the book, um, probably rightly, but it was it was fascinating because the trip that Heber, Bishop Heber does round India started, you know, uh, is exactly what Blavatsky does, and then Crowley does it as well, almost down to the same towns. Really? Yeah. So, you know, Crowley's following in Blavatsky's footsteps, there's no doubt of it, and so was Alan Bennett. Uh, but once Alan Bennett had decided to commit to Theravada Buddhism, he then goes to Rangoon and, and uh, trains to become uh, a, a bhikkhu and, and to, to become uh, an enlightened one. And Crowley didn't go all the way with him on that, but they, they had a constant dialogue. 
nobody can be exactly sure how Bennett came to see Crowley in later years. There have been stories put around that he condemned Crowley's uh, magic. Um, but I, I, the, when you actually examine the material, it that's, doesn't appear to be the case. I think they had a mutual respect right through. And um, as I say, Crowley was, to all intents and purposes, in 1903 a Buddhist, and still a Buddhist in 1904, even after after uh, Cairo. But Cairo represents, I think, his inner revolt against Buddhism. It's 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 his revolt against the first noble truth. You know, everything is sorrow, which Crowley had been convinced of since at least the age of about 19, 20, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, after his experience in, in his uh, final year at, uh, at Cambridge. Yeah. When he despairs of light in this world, you know. And, uh, I, you know, obviously in all of this, there's a great deal for any active seeker today to 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 cut his teeth on and learn from. Absolutely. I think it's a path that I, as you describe it here, that from, from searching in magic, then going into Buddhism, creating your own Gnosticism, as you just called it, uh, through Tantra somehow, even if you didn't do it exactly that way. And that is a path that is being followed by many seekers nowadays, isn't it? It's, it's a very modern path. I mean, I'm not saying it's not my path personally, I would say, but it's something that I hear a lot about, about that particular path through Gnosticism, Thelema, um, Buddhism, that, that mixture, individual mixture, partly of it. Do you, would you agree to that? Well, I think it's perfectly obvious that's, that that is the case and has been for many years. Uh, and before the 60s as well. I mean, the 60s saw a popularization of what uh, people had been doing for, for some decades. I think Crowley is a bit of a pioneer. Sure. Uh, and he's creative with his, with his sources. And he's always fun to read anyway, because he, he had a, just a wonderful way of writing, um, which engages your intellect very precisely on the issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think we cannot speak, and you did, of course, speak about that. I cannot speak about Crowley in India without speaking about him also as a mountaineer, right? Of course, because um, uh, his time, he, the time he spent climbing the Himalayas was certainly also a very, very important phase of his life, but maybe in a different way. How, how would you see that? Well, I think there's the inner climb, the inner ascent, Mm. and then there's the analog of that, Mount Analog, if you're familiar with that work. Mm -hmm. Mount Mm -hmm. Analog is the the external ascent. You're obviously going to see a lot more of the world from the peak of a mountain than from the bottom of a valley. Mm -hmm. And your perspective is going to be massively increased. One of the things that was fascinating was when Crowley was thinking of going, when he was planning to go up K2, he's reading H.G. Wells' book, The First Men in the Moon. Oh, really? And, yeah. He's, and he's, he, I think what he was really interested in was the idea of getting to the stars, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and you think that was part of his motivation there? Yes. I mean, he'd started as a mountaineer for his health. It'd been yeah. rec- recommended to him by Joseph Lister, the pioneer of sterile medicine. 
It was in Switzerland, back in Switzerland, right? No, 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 no. He, no? he met Lister in the Isle of Skye in Scotland in 1891 when, okay. he was, when he was on a holiday with his mother. And uh, he'd been bullied at school. He had terrible stomach problems. And once the children found out, they just thumped him in his stomach. And at one terrible school he went to in Cambridge, he was he nearly died from the, the bullying and, and the torture. Yeah. So first of all, mountaineering built up his strength. But the other thing about mountaineering is it's while you do it with other people, it's still a lonely, solitary kind of thing. Sure. Um, and so you, you build up a close team, but you're still very much on your own. And um, that's what got me interested in Crowley in the first place was I'd, I'd started mountaineering uh, when I was 18 and I'd gone oh, to the you? Alps. And when I went to Oxford, I went to a mountaineering club and somebody was talking about Crowley and that's the first time I heard about him in the context of mountains. And as I was also interested in poetry and mysticism, you know, obviously he seemed to me like, oh, there's somebody else, you know. It was <laughs> fascinating. One was always on the lookout for interesting, outstanding individuals, and they don't come much more interesting or outstanding than Alistair Crowley. And that's why Certainly, he, yeah. he annoys so many small-minded people, you know, who can't bear anything that is beyond their own bounds, you know. Crowley was very far out, let's face it. And he, when you think of what he was doing in this period, 1900, he just seems to be completely out of his time. That, that's what's the interesting thing. He's a bit in a completely different realm, but a bit like Freud at the same time, right? He, he, he yeah, not, not nearly as tedious as Freud, yeah. Not nearly as tedious as Freud, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> well, he speaks to Brits, to the Austrian, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, he went to Britain, Freud went to Britain, then he, he, he coped with that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, but um, seriously, um, but, but he... He was ahead of his time, you say, also by going to India. And, but what did he bring back? Your part two of the book, I, I think, uh, bears an extraordinary title. It's called India in Crowley, right? It's not Crowley in India, but it's India in Crowley. And I find that that duality of the two parts of the book fascinating. So what's, what India is there in Crowley? Well, I think they, obviously what he brought back from India was... Uh, not only a cosmic perspective, which he gained from his climbing and his traveling and his ability to see so many different cultures uh, working in one society, but with enormous amounts of relativity and tolerance between them. Mm -hmm. uh, so he could see that, you know, he got a vision of humanity, uh, certainly from, from observing India. Um, I think uh, India has been, is arrests the a Western imagination uh, very, very profoundly anyway, um, because it, as a phenomenon, it is just simply an extraordinary uh, collection of people. How do, yeah. how do they manage to live, you know, in these extraordinary circumstances and, um, and, and keep smiling, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but really what he brought, what he, what the, the India he brought back was, was the, was, I think this primarily, I mean, I, I, I talk about his engagement with one particular book, uh, which was Vedantic Raj Yoga by Sabapati Swami. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that that was a book that he he brought back, studied, and I think kind of internalized it. When you study this book, Vedantic Tell us a bit about, a bit about the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was written by a very, very unusual Swami called Sabapati, who had who'd... who'd um, 
had a vision of Shiva in his youth. He experienced uh, samadhi at, I think, the age of 20, in his early 20s, which I think was also an ambition of Crowley. Um, he had studied with Sufi uh, teachers in the south of India and had attended Sufi, and he'd also been trained as, in a Christian school. So Sabapati Swami is an interesting one because he's already a kind of, multi, what's the word, a comparative religionist. Yeah. Now, he, he developed his own system of, of Raj Yoga. And what is utterly fascinating about it, from my point of view, not necessarily from Crowley's, was that if you read the, how he talks about the, the journey of the Atma through the chakras and back up to the, to the crown, you see immediately two things. One is the entire Gnostic system of the second, third century, which sure. is the journey of Sophia through the tree. To, yeah. to awaken Jesus in the tomb, remember, right. and bring him right. back up to the Pleroma. Right. See that straight away. And, of course, you see the uh, tree of life, the Kabbalistic tree, where you can see the sephira as the, mm -hmm. uh, the sephirot as the, sephirot, as the yeah. chakras. Yeah. And you can also see Old Testament mysticism because a chakra means a wheel. So you can see Ezekiel's vision of the Son of Man and the wheels in Ezekiel's mm. ch chapter 1 and chapter 2, which is such a, a stock of the Gnostic tradition. All of that's in Sabapati Swami. Crowley typically takes us all for granted. He's not really interested in writing essays about, oh, that connects that. To him, it was perfectly obvious this guy has got a, a working system for connecting uh, the Atma to the Brahman. Mm -hmm. or as he calls it, the Brahmatma, as uh, Sabapati okay, yeah, yeah, calls it. Yeah. Now, this has obviously influenced some of Crowley's magical rituals, but he, he comes up with his own sort of version of it. I, I thought that, that that was a major uh, thing. Once, once you've identified Samadhi with the, with the Holy Guardian Angel, you're starting to understand the whole crux of Western Gnosis, and you realize, in fact, it, it is the same as, as the, uh, the, the Eastern traditions of enlightenment and so on. Uh, we have a slightly more vivid, uh, plastic way of, of, of viewing these processes, I think, than you'll find in the Hindu tradition. Um, uh, but th there it is. I mean, there is only one Gnosis. Um, uh, India is in Crowley after that. The spirit of India is in him. You, you can feel it. But again, he also absorbed the spirit of North Africa. You know, he was... Absolutely. He, that was yeah. so part of him. And, uh, but, but India, his interest in curries is one. I'm going to be writing about that in my next book, his massive uh, interest in cooking the hottest curries in London in the 1930s. <laughs> um, uh, that, that's come out of it as well. I mean, my grandfather, sure. my, when my grandfather came back from India after the 40s, he, he also had everything he was cooked, he had to cover in pepper, trying to, re uh, really? trying to yeah. recover the, the, the taste of India. Yeah, yeah. I think, but also the sexuality of the, of the Indian uh, Kundalini tradition and the attitude to women in Hinduism, I think, um, to, not the attitude to women socially, so much. Yeah, no, but no. Certainly, the 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 veneration of the energetic, the, really vener like the veneration yeah. of the feminine, yeah. very much, um, yeah, very much accorded with his his viewpoint. Um, so, and he looked for. I mean, he he wrote about the eventual liberation of India. Uh, he knew that was coming, 
Um, even in 1900, he writes about it, uh, which is quite early for somebody. And British that, that is surprising. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He wrote yeah. a prophetic poem called uh, Carmen, um, uh, Carmen Seculare, or a secular hymn. She wrote on the ship going over to New York for the first time in July 1900. And he goes through all of Britain's possessions and also about Germany, Austria, Hungary, Russia. And he says all of this is going to be swept away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's a prophetic poem about the downfall of the old empire and the, the coming of a, a new warrior lord who he already is associating with the sun. So he was right, he's writing new eon inspired prophecy, even without knowing it aged. Uh, was uh, yeah. I was going to say that, 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 that that's really much before Cairo and, and he yeah, experienced Ky there. Cairo is the logical culmination. Consequence. Of yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, if it, 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 unless you're a sort of literalist Crowleyan and treat Crowley as, as the evangelical does the King James Bible, uh, it's perfectly obvious that Crowley was a, a Thelemite before, uh, he, before he wrote down the, the book of the law. You know, when I do those interviews, I always listen after about 30 minutes while we speak, where would be a nice moment to break? I must tell you, it's really hard to know where to break when I interview Tobias Churton because one thing comes out of the other and it's so fluid, it's hard to interrupt. But I did it and here we are. And well, we are not leaving Tobias entirely, of course. We are going to listen to his music now and then we return. Okay, so Tobias Stritten is also a very active musician. I told you that before and we have heard one example today already and three other examples in our last show two years ago when he was with us. Um, now, in the next song that we are going to hear, he is joined by his daughter, his daughter Merovi. And um, she is singing a song by Tobias, which is called John Lennon's Birthday. Well, those of you, I think most of you would remember that this year in October, on October 9th, it would be 80, John's 80th birthday. And Tobias has written a song in memory and honor of John Lennon and this beautiful song is performed and sung by his daughter Merove. Um, those of you who have not heard Tobias' book on the 60s, well, have heard the podcast about the book, about the 60s, of course, um, you should go and listen to that episode at the end of season two, um, which will tell you much more about why what we're going to hear now has also been important in Tobias' life and become somehow important in his daughter's life as well. Okay, John Lennon's birthday. Enjoy. As you lie inside your bed, the strangest things can happen in your head.
John Lennon's Birthday, a song created and performed to the honor of John Lennon, who would have his 80th birthday this year on October 9, a song composed by Tobias Churton, who is our guest today in the interview and performed and sung by his daughter Meroe. Okay, yes, let's go back right away to the second part of that lovely interview. Um, we start right in again with the question, what's a telemite anyway? And as always, Tobias has interesting replies to that. Then after that, we are going to talk also more about more diverse things, of course, also about his future plans and um, some ideas that he has on his mind. I won't keep you much longer. Just to remind you that immediately after the interview, without further break, there will be a third musical piece by Tobias Churton that we will hear. It's, as I say, a musical piece, not a song this time, a very personal one, which is called How Can I? It's an instrumental orchestral piece written in memory of a lost friend. Okay. And that's uh, very kind also of Tobias to give us those pieces of music for our show today. Let's go back to England now, meet Tobias again and listen to the second part of the interview. What is a Selamite anyway to you? How would you define that? Well, it, uh, it's a it's it's um, face the kuvudra. It's it's my it's it's the philosophy of mind your own business, isn't it? I mean, we have that <laughs> we have that we have that phrase um, in English. I don't, do you have the same phrase in 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 Vienna? Mind your own business. If somebody yeah. asks too personal a question, you say, "Look, mind your own business." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shall yes, yeah. yeah anyway, my, yeah. My my father used to say, "People with no business of their own are forever minding somebody else's." Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and isn't most politics just that? A lot of people putting their uh, inquisitive nose into other people's business. Oh, that's not fair. That's not just. I don't like that. We must stop it. This whole mental attitude, which is a disease yeah. of Western yeah. democracy, uh, robs individuals of their true will, which is their right to live their lives as they will. And, and which we think comes to a culminating point at the moment, because the split into two sections in every single question that is raised is very something very present in, our, in, in today's politics, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that duality is the curse, you know, what Crowley would call the curse of because you have to justify everything to somebody. No, you don't. Mm. Just do it. Mm. You, you know, you don't have to. Uh, the other thing about the Abbey of Philema is one should always read the chapters on Philema in Rabelais' Gargantua and Pentagral. And you'll see that this imaginary community, the Abbey of Philema, um, you look at the list of people who it doesn't welcome. Churls, argumentative people, vicious, low-minded, ignoble types. You know, all of the, all the people who are basically born troublemakers are not allowed in the Abbey. Yeah. <laughs> but, once you've, but once you've got an Abbey with people of a certain spirit, a certain noble spirit and a generosity, a liberal, a truly liberal spirit, that's what liberal means, generous. Yeah. You can have this perfect community. And then you don't need religion, you don't need priests, because you, you, you wouldn't want to hurt your fellow, you know. 
and you want them to live as they as they want to. And that's that's the thel- the Thelemite challenge to all imposed moral orders is I don't need you to tell me how to live. Right, right. But now that you wrote, I believe it was four books so far about Crowley. Is God, right? uh, hang on. Uh, Be- yes, Berlin. Four. Yeah, but yeah. Berlin, India, yeah. America, America and the biography. Yeah. Exactly. So I'm not sure that except for the curries, you have already made all the, all the sites on him that you would, the sightings on him that you would like to do. But um, do you for yourself out of this large view that you got yourself, has it, has your view on Crowley changed? I mean, not only become clearer and better and deeper, but has it changed something? Has it become different through all that work that you have done? Yes. I mean, it changes all the time. I'm constantly challenged. I'm doing, I'm doing, I've done, I've got another book coming out next year, which is about the pillars of Enoch, which we can talk Mm -hmm. about later because that's the basis of hermetic philosophy, which is really your interest. Um, But after that will come my next, next book, which is Mm -hmm. the, which will be my last Crowley uh, biographical study, and it's called Alistair Crowley in England, which covers the the terribly long period where he he was confined to England from right. 1932 to 1947, which he'd, he'd never been confined in his life. He's confined to England; he can't get out. He's been kicked out of Italy. He's been kicked out of France. The Americans won't give him a visa. Yeah, you know. And he can't the get the whole Russia. war story. Can't yeah, go right. back to Russia because of the Russian Revolution, uh, and he's got no money anyway. So he's stuck in England, and and that period has its own interests, and I, I should be looking at that. So um, you ask me, does it has it changed me? Yes, I have a much rounder view of the man. I've long ago got over the demon Crowley problem. Mm-hmm. which you inherit if you if you like me came to Crowley in the 1970s you can't yeah. avoid John Simon's book The Great Beast and you can't avoid the enormous amount of negative imagery imagery of Crowley which still well is now multiplied on the internet yeah i think without the internet i think crowley studies would be doing quite well i think the scholarship would have been recognized at last but but journalists today I'm not going to read my book. They're going to go on the internet, plug in Alistair Crowley and read the first thing that comes up. And And what comes up, the bad things, of course. 90% of what will come up is rubbish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and so you have to be a true seeker to find the good stuff. Um, There aren't many. And that's why truth is never going to be a democratic principle. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> how how do we continue from that? Okay. Well, I, yeah, I would like I, to go into that. I'd like to go into that a bit more. Yeah, um, do, do, because, because I, I, me yeah. too. <laughs> I mean, obviously you have, if you're in a way you're asking, well, do you believe in Alistair Crowley? So I feel that's sort of under there. So. Uh, well, belief is a, is a strong word, but yeah, you're not, you're not completely wrong. Yeah. Yes. Do, do I subscribe to every, yes. do I subscribe to a religion of Crowleyanity? Uh, am I a card carrying member of a, you know, a, a sect of Crowleyans? And I would, I would definitely say no. And I would say that, uh, 
because if you understand Alistair Crowley, you never would be. Yeah. Well, the, the opposite, if you had said the opposite, I wouldn't have believed you, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think he's, he's, I think I said before the program started that if Crowley had written a book like Ludwig Wittgenstein and had started it with the words, the world is everything uh, that is will or something like that. You remember Wittgenstein's beginning? Yeah, sure, sure. The world is everything that is the case. Oh, God, it's so brilliant. Is yeah. it? I think not. <laughs> anyway, um, if he'd written a book of his philosophy, which he could have done, I don't think it would have been a thick book. I think it had been mm-hmm. quite thin. If he'd written it as a philosophy, I think he'd probably have done better in terms of his reputation. Um, but of course, that would also have subjected his thoughts to straightforward academic analysis. Uh, and I'm not sure his kind of thinking does. Uh, respond to academic analysis that easily. Um, however, he came from an era where if you were going to say anything about religion or truth, it had to have supernal authority. And this is the problem. Once you say that a teaching of Crowley's has supernal authority, it comes from above. It is from the Neshama. It is God-given, it comes from the guardian angel. It comes Iwas. Iwas. You know, this idea that there are masters whose conception of life is so utterly beyond us that we could never understand their motives, which he does offer as a defense of Iwas quite a few times. Mm -hmm. I think it's one of the worst possible defenses because you are basically saying... um, these people know a lot more about you, but you're prepared to believe in them. These masters know more than you do, but you're prepared to accept them. Well, if they know more than you, how do you know that the source is good for you ultimately or even trustworthy? Unless you're going to put yourself in the absolute position of an utter, somebody who simply surrenders to a higher, uh, allegedly higher source of authority. Now... Right. If you do that, it seems to me you haven't taken one step forward from the history of religion for the last umpteen thousand years, which is somebody says, this is the truth, whether you like it or understand it, it is the truth. Now, in science, we accept a truth, not because somebody told it was true. We accept a truth because it can be demonstrated time and time again, and it may be understood. It and may, the opposite can be time. It may take time to understand it. Right. And the even op- the opposite can be proven later and then becomes a new truth. Even that is possible in, in science. Yeah. I think Crowley has this slight problem, uh, which I would love to have debated with him. And I've, I've had access to enormous amounts of his papers unpublished, where he does try to deal with this issue. But unfortunately, it usually comes down to him saying, I've tried to rebel against this idea myself. How, of course I have. How could you not think that I've not been intellectually challenged? It, it goes, chapter three of the book of the law goes against everything I, I think ought to be the case. But it is the case. And um, I was, has proved to me that he knows uh, more than I, uh, than my ordinary mind ever could. And 
But if you took him further and then you said, well, what if Iwas is a part of yourself? He would say, well, it's very dangerous to start thinking you and your higher source of intelligence are the same because this leads to ego inflation, which he rightly says is the beginning of all problems in yeah. mental health. Absolutely. So he said it's much more convenient and more healthy to think your source of inspiration or, or guidance is a separate being. It's just, okay. and I think he not only thought it was convenient, my belief is that he believed it was. Mm -hmm. Because in the end, he would say, who is Alistair Crowley? He's just an event that happened because my mother and father conjoined. Mm, yeah, for sure. Whatever, whatever that created can only ever be a vehicle for something that is much greater. For example, every child grows up and sees the world Already from the time he's born, the moment he opens his eyes, he's seeing something far greater than him or herself. Yeah. So in that sense, we're kind of uh, overwhelmed from the moment we're born by something bigger. So why is it when we reach our teen years and we become self-obsessed and, and neurotic and, and worried about who we are and how other people judge us and all the rest of it, why is it at that point we're prepared to throw the world away and, and erect, you know, uh, me, I, me, mine, and yeah. then have to spend the rest of our lives trying to get rid of I, me, mine <laughs> by listening to the Beatles and George Harrison, and, you know, trying to find God again, which we, had yeah. at the, which we had at the very beginning anyway. So in that sense, what is an individual mind and what is it that is sovereign in a being? I engage myself with these questions many days and still am. I don't have, I get inspired sometimes, but, you know, I think I've got it. That's it. That's it. Uh, mm -hmm. But, but I'm, I'm still challenged. I think I'm not sure that an individual human being ever stands long enough in one place to understand anything very much. We're a kind of, there's a kind of perpetual chaos going on. Right. And, and that chaos is even faster today than it used to be in Crowley's day because we are overwhelmed by so many, we can't even help being overwhelmed by so many things from the outside world. Huh? Well, we're, 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 we're making it considerably worse for ourselves by uh, plugging ourselves in continually to, to our, the iPhone and the internet. I, one thing that's been about this terrible business we're going through at the moment with the, where we've been attacked by an invisible enemy. Um, well, it's invisible uh, to most of us. So I put it under a microscope, it's perfectly visible. Um, but I, I noticed how nice the birds are <laughs> and how healthy, yeah. how healthy yeah, they are, yeah. how, yeah, how, yeah. how blue the skies and all these sort of things. And, 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 and here we do have an opportunity at this moment to actually stop and, and try and look at where we are in the great scheme of things and whether we're going in the right direction with a close, more closely integrated so-called global society and all that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, as you mentioned that, I, I wrote down that you will write that book about Crowley in England where you said he was confined. And of course, the word confined nowadays rings a bell, um, exactly to what you were just saying. But being confined, 
now talk about Crowley, about ourselves. I don't, maybe it's the same answer. Um, being confined is, of course, a feeling that we don't like, especially spirits like Crowley or I would say us, because uh, in a way we are, we have the same motivation underneath that. That's why we do what we do. Um, but being confined, even if we can basically do what we want still, if you compare to the Middle Ages, we are perfectly free people, but we are confined. Um, how does that, oh, he's sighing when I say that. <laughs> um, well, the, enorm the enormity of what you're saying is registering <laughs> with me. <laughs> um, how does that change something in our mind how how did it change Crowley how did it does it change us how did it change what being confined how did being confined change Crowley yeah yeah and the, uh, the feel even the feeling of being confined well I suppose Crowley was a bit like William Blake insofar as in 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 his own mind he, he contained multitudes uh the, the, he was aware of the infinite worlds within so it, in that sense to confine Crowley is to, is to make him look inwards. Um, Crowley was imaginative enough to always make some fun out of where he was. Uh, and he had the ha pleasure, at least by the time he was, well, we should say, how old was he in 1930? He's, uh, 50, he's 55, mid-30s, he's 60. By the, by the age of 50, he had seen the world, luckily, anyway, and he had written about that. He'd written his autobiography up to the 20s anyway. Um, but I think it's very interesting. His very last publication called Ola, or 60 Years in Song, was a collection of poems that had been written all over the world. And I was very touched by this. And if you read it, and some of the poems are awfully good. Um, but what he's actually doing is poetically revisiting in his imagination all these places he's been. The other thing I noticed was in his diaries for the 1940s during the war, he went to the cinema a great deal. And certain films he went to six, seven times. And, and they weren't, you know, art films. They weren't, you know, profound. One of them was a Bob Hope comedy he adored. Uh, but another one, there was one that was set in New York in Greenwich Village, and he went to it six times. And it's a sort of light comedy, mystery, whodunit, detective film. I bought it. It's from 1940, about 1943, uh, with um, Jeanette MacDonald, I think, who played the part. Uh, she's very, very good in it. And um, anyway, the point is I could see what he'd done. The film gives you a picture of Greenwich Village and he, of course he used to live there in 1918. And his happiest, some of his happiest days were waking up in Washington Square, looking at the right. trees with Leah Hersig and he was painting and he had, he had a, for a short time, he had a wonderful life and he brings all that back. So, of course, I think he had very natural feelings of being imprisoned in a dark, not just a dark country to a stage. I mean, Britain was depressed, but Germany was more depressed. Yeah. Uh, America was as depressed. Uh, the whole world was under a depression at that point. Mm. Uh, my guess is he would most dreamed about canoeing up the rivers of Burma, things like that. I think that's what the food was also about. The interesting gourmet cooking and the, and the Indian food was another way of revisiting. So, okay. so he was, I think he was compensating. He was compensating for the loss of a world, but it, he, it made him more intensely dream of the future world. And he's so, he's so desperate to find 
people, young people particularly, who are going to carry, be his heirs and take it on. And he gets great hope when he meets Grady McMurtry, uh, Louis Grady McMurtry, who was an American uh, uh, company commander at the time of the Battle of the Bulge. Okay. Um, which is 1944. And risking his life and coming back from Germany during the war itself to visit Crowley in London. Ah, and, and, okay. and, you know, and, and, and having long, long hours and hours of talks. And Crowley said to him at one point, when you see the young people dress in Oriental costume, you will know your time has come to lead the OTA. Well, didn't it happen? <laughs> he also said something incredible in his letter to Grady, which from 1943 says, 1965 will be a very important year in the eon of the child, the growth really? of the child. He saw the yeah. era as a child growing. So there was always a very optimistic side that, of Crowley that saw the light at the end of the tunnel. He knew the Nazis would fail. He realized in 1939, he did an I Ching and he said, will the Nazi, you know, will Germany succeed? Mm -hmm. And he gets the hexagram, the weak beam. Ah, they won't, get, they won't make it. And he, okay. and he lived through the V1 and the V2 rockets coming in. Right, uh, sure. yeah, yeah. Which, which was unheard of destruction. Uh, but he saw the light. Actually, the, of course, the light didn't come in 1945 because no. Britain had a Labour government, with, which had a, uh, read, led by Clement Attlee, who seemed to think that we should remain at war, you know, but with ourselves. <laughs> yeah, 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 well, OK. Yeah. <laughs> um, you had mentioned Yotio just now. I have to ask you that question as well. Um, sometimes I get the impression, but... I see that completely from the outside, so maybe I'm wrong. But sometimes I get the impression that uh, not only the OTO, but other orders who had a great personality at their origin, say also anthroposophy like Steiner does the same to me, um, they, create, they create like a church around that person and that's exactly what that person would not have wanted i pretend to say um so would you would you say i'm right with that assumption or do i, I think you're absolutely you're absolutely right i mean it is it's the gravest problem i mean even grady mcmurtry was a bit of a hope for crowley but he was ne was never going to be crowley so they, yeah. the church, as you call it, would always end up talking about Crowley. And the more you talk about Crowley, he becomes more deified. He becomes more, slightly more remote. He starts to rise above. And before long, you've got Jesus Christ, you know, in Santa Sophia or, or some church where he's so far above. You yeah. can only worship this. The nimble right. is too strong. And you and don't change a comma to anything. That was all... He did all that stuff about not check. Well, he didn't write the thing because he was sick of uh, people arguing about texts. Mm -hmm. um, so there should be one text. But yes, you're absolutely right. Um, Crowley was Crowley's religion, and it is Crowley's religion. It's his best effort at uh, a religion. The reason we're talking about it is because he made a very good job of his idea of a religion and it chimes in with, with a lot of our thinking. Um, but if it, a religion isn't a religion if it doesn't have heretics. On the other hand, somebody has to look after the, the book. Somebody has to be the scribe and keep the records. It does matter because uh, any religious impulse 
is likely to, almost certain to be perverted. I mean, if you look at the history of Islam and very quickly the argument over lineage starts. Sure. Uh, and he, same with the Christian church, yeah. you know, and the old jokes about the, um, do you know the joke about the, 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 the Jewish man who's, uh, swept on an island on his own like Robinson Crusoe and eventually the ship comes and says hey you've been on your own all these years he says yes but I, I haven't been wasting my time in the, and he said well let me show you the island and he, he shows one end of the island he says there's a synagogue and they go to the other end of the island and there's another synagogue <laughs> and, and, this guy, and the captain who welcomes him aboard the ship says just one question why did you build two synagogues on the island? He says, ah, that is the synagogue I go to, and that is the synagogue I don't go to. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. every yeah, individual yeah. creates his, his own heresy, you know. Yeah, sure. But why do you create a religion? Because he calls it like that. You just call it like that. a religion when you talk about true will. Well, I, I think this is the basic problem of religion, isn't it? Is how do you keep going the initial spark because you know when I was a boy I had my own spark I had my own burning bush experience and if I'd have been a total egotist I could have manufactured sincerely a complete religious philosophy based on some oracular utterances and who knows I might have might have been lucky enough to get a following or unlucky enough I would say to get a following as it was I said well we've got an existing religion in my country called the Church of England I'll see if I can work along with that and um, put some inspiration back into this rather dry institution right. but I'll be honest with you it didn't work you know and uh, the, the church didn't like what I had to uh, bring it felt to me Yeah. And uh, yeah. so do, the question then was, well, do we start a new Gnostic church? I kept asking myself that question. And I, I knew a few people who would have been interested in the idea. But then I looked, well, there are already some Gnostic churches, aren't there? Quite a lot, actually. Uh, and you've got Steiner and you've got um, anti-Steiner somewhere, and, yeah. you know, and all this. And you just sort of, eventually, you, you just sort of say, ah, do what thou wilt, do, do your own thing. So, um I think Crowley's idea that there would there would be a great Thelemic church and this would revolutionize the philosophy of the world. If you see that in terms of an institution, then I, he was either wrong or misguided. Mm. But he had another way of looking at it as well, which is much more interesting, which is that the the insights of Thelema being absolutely true fundamentally, i.e. you do what you are, Yeah. would eventually simply become the normal conception anyway. Mm -hmm. And you don't need an institution as such to, you know, guarantee right. that. Right. And um, he saw the Thelema as being what was going on in his lifetime in the 20th century. He said, look how the position of the sexes have changed. Look how women have started to claim more individuality. He said, and the children will start to claim more, more mm -hmm. authority and attention. And, yeah. uh, and, and interest. And we will start to look at sex, not as something to be ashamed of, but as something to explore. And uh, we will look at religions as subjects to study, not things to be afraid of. And, you know, and like Jung, who said that the totalitarian system would never last because human beings deeply don't really want it. Yeah. 
They can be frightened into it and misled into it, but they don't really want it. So in the end, I suppose there is a naturalism in the Crowley viewpoint. In other words, he believed that the Thelemic principle would be established because there's no, there is no ultimate evolutionary alternative. And what direction it will go in remains to be seen. Um, he, he, he was a strange man in that sense. He did have, there were two Crowleys. There was the thinking uh, erudite Crowley, but there was always this other Crowley, if you called on it, that had been given a position by a supernal power. Of that he was convinced. He was convinced mm-hmm. that yeah. he'd been touched by a, a, a power beyond this world and that he had a specific role to play, and he believed in that. And that was his, yeah. he carried that cross. And, and I would say he suffered very much for it. Certainly. We don't have to carry that cross. We got our own. You know? We got our own crosses. I would say ultimately is I, a, lot of, a lot of good ideas are not necessarily, should never be totalitarian. They should never have the ultimate truth. But they're very useful for knocking other ideas which are oppressing us. And when I see collectivization going on, either politically or in in the way we're thinking and the lack of individuality, I think then we need a Crowley battering ram say, look, we don't we don't need your education as right. Pink Floyd said. Right. We've right. got we've got our own and we I I get something out the book of the law. I also get something out the gospel of Luke. I get something yeah. out the Bhagavad Gita. I get yeah. something out of the uh, of the Shastras or the Sutras or you know there's something in the Quran for everyone and all the rest of it. Yeah. I often thought of I've often thought if I was God I'd I'd say hey I want to tell you something uh you people down there. These are God's Jews. These are God's communists. These are God's atheists. These are God's Christians. These are God's Muslims. Who are you? <laughs> what a great final word, Tobias. <laughs> that's fascinating. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Tobias. That, that was, again, a great hour in your company. Before we leave each other, um, well, you mentioned part of your future projects already, but I always ask, uh, maybe you have an, something else to, to tell us about, well, the, the a cookbook by Crowley. I don't know what it's going to be called. Crowley in England, we can expect from you. And um, well, say again, the hermetic book that you are called the, the lost, the lost pillars of Enoch. The lost pillars of Enoch, exactly. That's about so, the, book of en- the book of Enoch and its influence through time, in part. But it's also about uh, my uh, theory of the origin of hermetic philosophy and the or- or the origin of the figure Hermes Trismegistus. And why it was that in the Middle Ages, Hermes and Enoch are completely identified. This is very important. And, this, and there's a whole section on the origin of masonry in it. Okay. And it's not speculative tosh. It's yeah. me getting down to the, down to the, Earth. the evidence. Great. great. Well, uh, at the latest, at the very latest, we'll meet when that book comes out. But I'm, I, I have a suspicion it could be before that, couldn't it? <laughs> Well, yes. Uh, let's hope we're, I'm not under an oxygen tent, you know. <laughs> oh, come on, come on. No, no. The oxygen that you get is from your work, and that's that's good. It's that's from the, good. the Mountain Abbey Agnus. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
Well, Tobias, thank you. And uh, it's good to see you and to have you have you have felt you in better spirits than, than when we last exchanged via email uh, when all uh, hell was breaking loose around you in your in your in your surroundings, literally. So um, it's it's great to have you back. And thanks for for spending time with us today here on the Todd Thermis podcast. And well, as I said, uh, shouldn't have been the last one, should it? It won't be the last. You'll have to suffer me again. I'm happy about that. Thanks and bye for now. Bye, Rudolf.
Can I, an orchestral piece written and performed by Tobias Jurton in memory of a lost friend. Thank you so much, Tobias, for this lovely talk, uh, which really was inspiring again. Um, we had planned that interview a little bit earlier already, but unfortunately due those, to those really terrible weather situations in, this, in the part of England where Tobias lives, we had to postpone the talk twice, um, but I'm glad that things have returned, at least on that level, a little bit to normal for him and that we were now finally able to speak and do that interview. Okay, friends and listeners, that's the end of today's show, right? Um, but you know that I don't let you go before I have told you what you are going to hear in the next episode. Okay, there we go. In episode 19, I am going to talk to a very special guest, I believe, to American science fiction author, comic book writer, and expert on divinatory tarot, Rachel Pollack. She's a highly regarded writer and tarot specialist, very deeply inspired by a Kabbalah approach and by a classical approach of the tarot. Well, I don't tell you more about it. Her book, 78 Degrees of Wisdom, that has been described by tarot readers and teachers around the world as the Bible of tarot readers. So all of you who are tarot fans, you really should listen to this interview. And those of you who are not yet so much into the tarot, well, you also should listen because you'll probably become a fan. Great. Um, well, yeah, that has been it for today. Um, next week, next show will be coming to you on next Sunday, May the 10th. Today we are talking with Tobias Churton about Crowley's India. And that means I can only tell you now, take care, stay tuned, Hear you soon.